Hey, welcome to the Healthful Woman Podcast, the fastest growing podcast in women's health. Today's Monday, August 14th, 2023. I'm joined today by Dr. Shari Luskin to talk about anxiety before, during, and after pregnancy. Last week, Dr. Luskin and I talked about anxiety in general, and this week, we're going to be focusing on anxiety specifically as it relates to pregnancy. As I mentioned last week, Dr. Shari Luskin is literally one of the world experts in the field of reproductive psychiatry, and it is amazing that she agreed to come on the podcast to share her knowledge and expertise regarding mental health and mental health and pregnancy. As I also mentioned last week, Shari gets a special shout out for recording these two podcasts on her birthday. Happy birthday. All right, reminder for anyone listening on Apple or Spotify, please, if you could rate us, that would be great, preferably with five stars. Another reminder, if you would like to send us any questions for our mailbag podcast, you can email them to hw at healthfulwoman.com, or you can go to our website, www.healthfulwoman.com, and click on the link that says send us your questions. Third reminder, Emily Oster and I wrote a book. We have links on our website and our social media if you want to pre-order it. It's coming out in April of 2024. It's called The Unexpected, Navigating Pregnancy During and After complications. All right. Thank you all for listening. See you next week. Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox, an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Healthful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. Dr. Shari Luskin, welcome back to the podcast. You were with us last week to talk about anxiety. Again, last week for our listeners, for you and me, four seconds ago, it's still your birthday. Thank you for coming on your birthday. Happy birthday. And we're going to talk about anxiety now specific to pregnancy. But before pregnancy, I want to talk about pre-pregnancy because obviously there are a lot of people who know they're being treated for either an anxiety disorder or some component of it or a psychiatric disorder with the components of anxiety. And they're seeing you as a patient and they say to you, I'm thinking of having kids, of trying to get pregnant. What do you think? And so how do you approach that with your patients preparing for a pregnancy for someone who's under your care for anxiety? That is something we approach right from the very beginning. So as long as you're treating somebody with a functioning uterus, mm-hmm. there's a possibility that they will get pregnant and it may not be planned. Right. So when I first see the patient, I want to know, are they using contraception? Right. By the way, big news in the contraception world. Yes. Right. Well, I'm yeah. sure you can. Over the counter. Over the counter birth control pills. Wonderful. Very interesting. Yes. A good thing, generally speaking. Uh, it, it it makes a lot of sense. Considering yeah. what else you can get over the counter that's a lot more dangerous than birth control pills, it would seem that this is wise. Yeah, so let's make a pitch for reproductive freedom and reproductive <laughs> rights while we're here. Okay, and the ability for people to access proper reproductive health care. That would be, that in, would be wonderful. Including <laughs> the ability to determine when and if they get pregnant. Uh, it would be delightful. That would, that would be very One day, important. one day. <laughs> so anyhow, if you have, let's say you have, you're anxious, you go to a doctor and a doctor diagnoses you as having an anxiety disorder, one that merits treatment. Mm-hmm. The treatment could be a few sessions of psychotherapy, 
depending on the nature of the problem. Right. Or it could be psychotherapy plus medication, or it could be just medication alone. Right. Before you put that pill in your mouth, right. you should address the reproductive safety of that medication. Right. What would happen if I got pregnant while taking this medicine, right. planned or unplanned? Right. And we want to make our choices accordingly. Right. So to take most of the medicines that we use in psychiatry are safe for pregnancy right. if used correctly. Right. There is one drug that everybody should know about that is not a good idea in pregnancy if you can avoid it, and that's valproic acid. Right. It's a drug used for epilepsy, and it's a drug used for bipolar disorder. Right. Okay. Everything else can generally be used in pregnancy. Right. Blanket statement. I can yeah. go over the data. Right. But if it's working and the patient is well, right. then- you shouldn't assume that you have to go off medicine. Right. But it really, pre pregnancy planning starts at the first visit. Right. Very key. And if, you're, if your healthcare provider hasn't mentioned that, right. you can bring that up. Yeah. Right? No, I think that's, that's a really important point. And when you say the first visit, you mean the first mental health visit, not the first pregnancy visit. No. Meaning pre-pregnancy right. planning. The first yeah. visit with your health, mental health care provider. Yeah, right. That we used to call doctors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some of my best friends are doctors. Right. So the the first visit that you have with a psychiatric professional right. should include a discussion about the reproductive implications right. of your disorder and the reproductive safety of the treatment. Yeah. And I think it, it's important for a lot of reasons. Number one, obviously, am I taking something that I could continue to take if slash when I get pregnant? And if the answer is yes, Okay. And if the answer is no, then the question is, all right, do I plan on getting pregnant or how am I preventing myself from getting pregnant? Meaning if it's the right medication for you when you're not pregnant, fine, it's the right medication for you, but you need a plan. Okay. I need to either not get pregnant or, you know, figure that out versus if it's something you can get pregnant on. And then the same thing, you, if those discussions are had before pregnancy, it's much more beneficial medically, but also think about it. We're treating anxiety. Whereas if you got pregnant and you don't know if the medication is safe, it's going to make your anxiety worse. Like, so if you're prepared, so what, right, what do your like, patients yeah. do in that situation? It's, so they frequently just stop their medication and, and that makes happens? their anxiety worse. And then it's, it's a whole, again, it's a cascade of events. And so when I see patients before pregnancy, and I love seeing patients before pregnancy for whatever their questions are, when it's related to mental health and Usually with mental health, it's the medications they're on. It's not specifically the mental health part of it, but it's obviously all wrapped together. It's so much better because they'll know going into a pregnancy, yes, I spoke to someone. Hopefully he knows what the hell he's talking about, right? And we made a plan that because of A, B, C, and D, I'm going to continue this medication exactly as is. Or before pregnancy, I'm going to check with Dr. Luskin if I need to increase my dose, decrease my dose, add a second medication, remove a second medication, whatever it might be. And then when I get pregnant, if slash when I get pregnant, this is the plan. So there's no additional anxiety and I'm not tinkering around my medications. At the same time, I'm nervous about being pregnant and miscarrying and I'm nauseous and this and this. It's just the, it's the safer way to go. And it's the more, just from an experience perspective, it's so much more secure for people and satisfying for people to have that plan in place. So I do that, but obviously I don't have any say over who comes and sees me before they get pregnant. And so if you're seeing someone who's a mental health professional, 
talk about it with them. You don't necessarily have to see me. You might, you might not, but if they know what they're talking about, they'll say, all right, here's our plan for when you get pregnant. I'm comfortable with this plan. This is what we're going to do. And you do or don't need to see Fox before you get pregnant. And it's the same thing. You enter pregnancy so much more confident or comfortable with the situation rather than like, holy shit, I'm pregnant. What do I do? Like that's, that's not a good situation to be in for people, especially those who have an underlying anxiety disorder. So we were, we, we said last week yeah. <laughs> in quotation marks, we said that a little anxiety is good because it yeah. helps you prepare right. for a threatening situation or right. a potentially or an important situation. Yeah. It helps you prepare. So this is an example of where a little anxiety about what you're taking and what right. its impact on pregnancy would be right. helps you prepare right. by discussing it with your doctors. And by the way, I always like my patients to see you before they get pregnant, <laughs> because if they know who's going to be taking care of them and they've met your team, yeah, you know, in one way, you yeah. know, to some extent, an introduction, it yeah. reduces their anxiety about the pregnancy. Yeah. Oh, I've met them. They're they're like normal people who are bright and effective and all of those good things. Yeah, and that makes them calmer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's better for you to meet them pre-pregnancy, better for me to meet them it's, pre I love it. It's, it's the, my, Doesn't that yeah. reduce your anxiety? It certainly, yes. You, you, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, but also, it, 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 so when, when they show, it's same thing. When, when I see someone and they're coming to me and they're already pregnant and then they start telling me all their medical problems and all the medications they're on and this or this, I'm like, oh man, I wish we could have planned this beforehand. Again, it's not, usually it works out either way, but it's just, I'm like, oh, this is going to be a lot of, stuff for her to start tinkering around with. And she's already dealing with pregnancy. I, I just had a conversation. So literally two hours ago, I was meeting with a patient and she said, do I need to pick my pediatrician before the baby's born? I said, well, you don't need to, but you should. And they're like, well, why? I said, because you don't want to start looking through, you know, websites and, you know, calling doctors and trying to figure out who's good and who's not, and who lives near me and who takes my insurance after you've had a baby. Cause then you're not sleeping you're in pain. You're trying to nurse. You got this crying baby. You got people visiting you. You're dealing with all this you're stuff. You're making me really nervous. I mean, <laughs> you're, you're telling everybody about all the bad things. Yeah. But it's, no, it's beautiful it's, to have a young be, infant. Sure, and it but shouldn't make you anxious yeah. at all. Just because you have no idea what you're doing. Oh, yeah. Well, no, yeah, yeah, why absolutely. would that make you anxious? Right? Yeah. But it, it's, I'm like, that's not the time to start deciding what doctor am I going to see or is the baby going to see? Like, you can make that decision while you're pregnant. And so you just, all you need to bring with you is a hospital is their phone number or put it in your phone and then you're done. Like you've sort of pre-planned that. I, I have to, I have to say, based on what you just said, I have to interject something maybe a mm -hmm. little ahead of time. When anxious patients mm -hmm. come in with a birth plan, mm -hmm. it's the end of pregnancy. Yeah. They come in with four single space typewritten pages yeah. of how they want their birth experience to go. Right. They bring that to you? They bring it to me. I'm sure they bring it to you. I definitely see them. Yeah. And and I metaphorically uh -huh. rip that piece of those pieces of paper in half and okay. say, here's our birth plan. Right. You come out alive and healthy mm -hmm. and the baby comes out alive and healthy. Right. And the rest is commentary. Right. Because they're very anxious. And when you're too anxious. Right. And you try to micromanage a situation that's not in your control. Yeah. Because you're not in charge of the team. You're not in charge of the hospital. I mean, it's just impossible for you to control all of that. Right. It increases the possibility that things will not go the way you want them to go yeah. because you're focusing on something that's really not essential. Right. And you may distract somebody from doing what they're supposed to be doing. Now, of course, it's 
our job as the doctors to stay focused on the essentials. Right. But you don't want to kind of distract people if you don't have to. It's so interesting. I never thought of, I mean, obviously I, I, I've thought a lot about birth plans. We had a podcast on it and we, we spoke a lot about it and how that they're not, they're not conceptually a bad thing and people should have preferences and talk about it, but it's mostly the solution ultimately was it's not about the plan on paper. It's about a conversation with your doctor, your midwife in advance, you know, is this the type of person who I trust to make good decisions? Here's how it, you know, do I want an epidural? Do I not want an epidural? This is sort of how I want it to go. Is that doable? Is it not doable? Is it safe? Is that the conversation? I never, we didn't really focus on the subset of people with birth plans who it's sort of their treatment, their sedative, you know, for an anxiety disorder, right? Because having a birth plan does not mean you have an anxiety disorder, just saying that for the record. But for those who have a birth plan and it is their way to treat their anxiety disorder, it's the same sort of solution that it's a conversation in advance. It's preparation. It's talking about it. It's knowing about these things. So it's the same. It's interesting. Like that's why it would work better. But I agree that if someone is hanging on to that paper as like, this is how I'm going to treat my anxiety over labor, it's not going to work because shit happens. I mean, things go, things go left, things go right. And for most people with the birth plan, they get that. Like my plan is, this is what I want, but if things go awry, all right, we have to adjust and we adapt and we figure it out, we do it safe and right. And that's a very healthy way to approach a a labor. But if it's like, this is how it has to go, or I'm going to decompensate, that's an unhealthy way. And it's just a a manifestation of a problem. It's not the birth plan, it's a problem. I will encourage the patient to talk with the OB about the plan in general, like you said, epidural or C-section. But, you know, I think if somebody says, I am not having a C-section, no matter what, it really puts, it traps them because very often, forget the high rates of C-sections. There are legitimate medical reasons for having a C-section. But if you put yourself in this box that you're not having a C-section, you're having a vaginal birth, no matter right. what, you really can interfere with your medical care. Yeah, And so I think it's important for patients to understand that their their general wishes need to be respected. And of yeah. course, you want to make sure the staff is listening to, to yeah. the patient and respectful of the patient. But as long as they understand that part of the process is unpredictable and therefore you need to be flexible it will reduce their their anxiety in general and it will re, it will improve their experience of labor and delivery mm-hmm. even when things go sideways yeah and you have to have a lot more interventions than right. you expected right so it's you know part of the anxiety management in pregnancy but yeah. i always laugh when they come in i'm like oh my god how nice would it be if we could actually follow this plan <laughs> if nothing be, happened it would be great the would be the, great. the medications that are typically used for anxiety. I mean, the most common ones we see are some form of an SSRI, right? So whether that's whatever, Zoloft or whether it's Prozac or whatever they're on. Right. Just like we spoke about in our podcast related to depression, there, there may or may, there may be slight risk, may, probably not. And if so, it's very, very, very low, which is what all the data says, probably zero. But ultimately you're balancing taking a medication that you can't study perfectly versus being well. And pretty much for everybody, we choose to be well. Right. Right. Well, I think it's taking medication versus being unwell. Exactly. Unwell. That, right. Yeah. So it, again, the, and I think what I probably said then, what I typically tell people is, every now and again, I come across someone who's on one of these medications that probably don't need to be on it. Probably never needed to be on it. It was started for some strange reason. Fine. That's the person who may go off it before pregnancy or during pregnancy. But the majority of people who have an issue have a disorder. They have something that 
makes them from unwell to well, it is not a good idea to start stopping that medication because they're going to be unwell. And that's generally how it goes. So it's the same medications. The one medication that is more common with people with anxiety disorders compared to depression, which I get asked about a lot, are benzos. Mm -hmm. So they take Xanax, for example, they take mm -hmm. clonopin, whatever it is, either to help them sleep, to help them get through the day, to help them get through a busy day, a bad day, they take it as needed. And I have people who come to me and say, my doctor said, I have to stop this, that this is horribly dangerous for my baby. And now I can't sleep anymore. I can't function. What is your take on benzos? I can tell you my take, but I want to hear yours first because yours will be better. I'll make sure I'm not wrong. So benzos are benzodiazepines. Right. These are drugs that work on the benzodiazepine receptor, mm -hmm. which by the way, is the same place that alcohol works. Right. So these are drugs that lead to relaxation. They're called sedative hypnotics. So mm -hmm. they will calm you. And if you take enough of them, they'll put you to sleep. Right. The problem with the benzodiazepines is not that they cause birth defects right. or that they cause severe pregnancy effects. The problem right. is for the mother that you can have tolerance and withdrawal. Right. So you need higher doses. And if you're on high doses of benzodiazepines, there seems to be a higher risk that the baby might have some neonatal complications. Right. Jitteriness, tremulousness, breathing or feeding difficulties, right. sleep disturbances, which may reflect withdrawal right. in the baby. If I see somebody who comes in on a chronic with a chronic benzodiazepine uh, prescription, mm -hmm. or they're they're using right. they're using benzodiazepines on a daily basis for a right. long period of time, it's very difficult to take them off it during pregnancy because right. you usually need a long time. Right to get them off the medication safely. Right. But it really illustrates the point that no medications is safe if it's the wrong drug for the wrong condition used in right. the wrong way. Right. The drug in and of itself, or this right. class of medications in and of itself is not something that can't be used in pregnancy. Right. So the drugs would be Valium, which is diazepam, right. Xanax, which right. is alprazolam, clonopin, which is clonazepam. Right and lorazepam or right. Ativan. Right. Those are the drugs we see most commonly. Right. But if they work and they're used properly, then we continue them. Yeah. All right, good. I say the same thing. Uh, <laughs> thank God. All right, that would have been bad. The, yeah. And I think that sometimes it comes about from not even older data, but older recommendations where I think some of it was like people who in the seventies were like abusing Valium at the same time as cocaine or something. And it got mixed together and, you know, but it's not, like you said, that's not how it's supposed to be used. That's not the relevant, you know, comparison, but someone who has takes it for as needed for sleep, or they take it as needed on a certain day, or even like you said, it's someone who that's what they need to get through a day. That's part of their medication. It really hasn't been shown to increase the risk of birth defects. And there's a lot of data, a lot of people use it. So it's not like these are rare medications. And also I would say that in terms of the withdrawal side, the data is actually pretty reassuring that it's a, it's a pretty low risk of withdrawal in the neonate compared to something like narcotics. Like if someone's on methadone or if someone's on, you know, longstanding codeine or whatever it is, there's a much higher chance of the newborn having withdrawal symptoms after birth. And it's treatable. Like they, they give the baby, you know, methadone right. also for X amount of weeks. And it, it, ultimately it's okay if it's treated. And so we do have people who have to take chronic, you know, narcotics or methadone and that's okay. We can work with that and it's fine, but it's less so with these medications. The risk of that for babies tends to be less. And so I think people 
overestimate the risk of these medications specifically compared to the reality. Yeah, I'd say a lot of clinicians overestimate yeah, the risk yeah. because this class of medicines was associated right. with cleft lip and palate abnormalities, right. which is a split in the lip or the hard right. palate in the in the mouth. And that association was never shown to be a, a true causal relationship right. where right. taking the drug caused that right. relatively common type of birth defect right. compared to some which are right. much more rare. The other the other complication we worry about at the time of delivery would be sedation in the neonate. Right. It's surprisingly uncommon. Yeah. Now I've had uh, yes. I mean, one patient very comes to mind who was on three milligrams of clonopin a plus a very high <laughs> dose of quetiapine yeah. or Seroquel, right. very complicated bipolar disorder, came to me on the cocktail. Yeah. And there was no way. Yeah. There was just no way to get her onto a lower dose of medicine. Right. You know, we were kind of stuck with it. If she'd right. come to me a year before she got pregnant, right. that would have been different, but right. we were stuck. And that baby came out kicking and screaming and, yeah. you know, asking for a bottle. Basically, <laughs> it was like, no problem. Yeah. So maybe you could answer this question mm-hmm. for our listeners. How common are neonatal complications in general, like the transient neonatal complications? Before you answer, I want you to, to answer that because my medicines are always blamed for it. Yes. Well, no, it's easy if we can blame someone else. It <laughs> works for me all the time. So it depends on the complication. If you're like, for example, what's the chance my babies can go to the NICU, right? Something like that. Because that's like practical for parents. Right. The biggest predictor of that is the gestational age at delivery. So, you know, at 37 weeks, give or take 10% of those babies will go to the NICU plus eight to 10%. Under 37 weeks, it's higher, right? If you're if you're 28 weeks, it's 100% and uh-huh. whatever. Over 37 weeks, fine. At 38 weeks, let's say it's about, I'm, I'm not a neonatologist, but these are approximate numbers. Let's say it's, you know, five to 6%. And at 39 plus weeks, it's let's say 2% and it's sort of stable. Okay, so those are the rates. What is the chance my baby's gonna have a complication that seems to be something that could be from a medication, like the baby's too sleepy or the baby's too jittery? Like those are the two things, like, like too sedated, not sedated enough, right? Those types of things. It's very low. The chance that babies can go to the NICU for those things is very low for everybody. The, the main reason babies go to NICU at full term, again, is either because the there's a, a concern about an infection in the baby, like a mom had a fever and labor and this or that, or the baby's not breathing well or sort of working hard to breathe. That's not jittery, that's not sleepy. Like they see them working hard to breathe and that's a concern. Those are the top reasons, or maybe low blood sugar, also not related. So I would say very, very low in terms of things that could be related to a psychiatric medication. And so- Well, it's, are they related to the psychiatric medication? That's what I'm saying. The, the, I, the breathing my, things, it, as far yeah. as we know, no. Exactly. Yeah, so now exactly. so yeah, of that 10%, uh, 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 minuscule would be for something like Babies too jittery, babies too sleepy. It, it's it's not the types of things that babies typically get admitted to the NICU for. So the point is there are complications yeah. at the time of delivery. Yeah. But when a woman is taking right. a psychotropic medication, very unlikely the to be knee the jerk relation, yeah, the yeah. knee jerk reaction on the part of the doctors right. is to attribute it to the psychiatric medication. Absolutely. Even though because otherwise they'll attribute it to us. <laughs> To the yeah. doctor, <laughs> you did a bad job. No, no it, the vast a- majority of reasons baby goes to NICU has nothing to do with the medication the mom was on or the doctor. It's usually just how the baby's 
breathing status. And again, most of the babies who go to the NICU, again, at full term, it's just for to be cautious. Meaning if they somehow didn't go to the NICU and they went to regular nursery, the vast majority of these babies would just be fine, right? Because right, most of the kids going, yeah, they're just getting so get, Most, right? again, the kids who go to the NICU at 37, 39 weeks, frequently they're there just to be observed in a closer setting. It doesn't mean there's actually anything wrong or anything's happening. They just, they're like, I hey, will watch you a little closer. And that happens a lot. So yeah, the class of medications where we are concerned about the effects of the baby right after birth is really, really concentrated on like narcotics. Cause that is, well, the, yeah, yeah, that is, yeah that's well if known. You're, if yeah. you're addicted to narcotics, yeah. they're rapidly metabolized. Sure. So that means the amount that's yeah. in the baby's bloodstream is yeah. cleared very quickly. Right. So the baby can have withdrawal symptoms. Yeah. And so, yeah. And, that, and that's very, well, well known, well but known. treatable, you know, well and known totally and we know in advance. These are people who we tell them like, all right, you're on, you're on methadone because you've had an addiction. This is how you're treating this, is how you're well stay on it. Like we don't want you to break your decision, but just know that we're going to meet with neonatologists after birth, the baby's going to go to the NICU and they're going to start the baby on a low dose of methadone and slowly over time decrease it. So the baby doesn't have withdrawal and then the baby should be fine. And that is, that is true because we know about it in advance. That is really the only situation where, again, I don't want to say concerned because we know about it and it's treatable, but where we sort of predict that the baby's going to have some sort of withdrawal. We don't predict that with your SSRIs, you don't predict that with your benzos. It's very, very uncommon that that is actually something that comes to fruition in the baby. Almost, almost never. And and there's tremendous long-term data on the babies in terms of like neurodevelopment, neurocognitive Correct. development. And so it's really just that hypothetical concern of, oh, I'm taking medication early in pregnancy. Studies aren't perfect. You can't know a thousand percent. No, you can't know a thousand percent anything, but I also know it's not good to be unwell and it's not good to not sleep and it's not good to have bad nutrition and not exercise and avoid your life because you're not well. That's also bad. And so it's always these these balances. And that's why it's a conversation when someone knows what they're talking about. Yeah. And what's so important about your podcast is- Oh, here we go again. God, know, God bless you. This is why we invite you back. It's <laughs> not because the listeners like you, because I like you. <laughs> what, but what's really important and the reason this is a great thing to do on my birthday, oh, I'm so happy go. to participate, <laughs> is- you're helping to destigmatize psychiatric illness in general. Yeah. And psychiatric or psychotropic medication in particular. Right. So that people can get the help they need. 100%. Because there's still so many people who don't believe it's real. Yeah. Who blame the mother. Yeah. Who are taking a medicine during pregnancy yep. if there is a complication. Or blame her for having the anxiety. Even, uh, even though they they were going to step over, you know, right. but you know, right. so, why, so, why are you depressed? You're pregnant. You know, like, yeah. what? <laughs> right. When it's a horrible you have thing somebody to say to somebody who hasn't been able to conceive yeah. and they say you're pregnant, you should be fine. But of yeah. course it doesn't, it yeah. doesn't work that way. But you know, when you look at anxiety disorders, anything psychiatric is stigmatized yeah. in the medical community, not yeah. just the wider world. 100%. It's, we're still yeah. not there yeah. yet right. where these disorders are treated like any other biological yeah. disorder, but yeah. hopefully we'll get there. Yeah. I, I've said on the podcast multiple times that that is probably the thing that I've learned the most about unrelated directly to mm -hmm. you know, obstetrics, let's say, in my career is an understanding of mental health just in general, but also working with people who struggle with mental health and what their experience. Again, I, I, I can't be them, mm -hmm. but I can have so much more understanding, not even just empathy, but just like real like insight into what they're experiencing and to what they need and what 
they've been through in the healthcare system. And that's something that I've learned the most about. And so I know this, that some doctors really get annoyed when they see someone with mental health issues. And I was like, would you get annoyed if they had cancer? Like, does it annoy you? Like their cancer is horrible. They're very sick. They sometimes get better, sometimes don't. They take a lot of time, need a lot of medication, a lot of attention. That doesn't annoy you, like you're helping them. And why would someone with depression annoy you? Like, it doesn't make any sense. It's a, they don't want to have it. You know, it, they, they, it, they hate that they have it. it you know, they want to be better. The, the prejudice goes back, I mean, it just goes back so far. I don't even know when it started. Well, it, mm. it goes back to the fact that you can't see it. Yeah. I mean, actually, you can see depression. Right. You can see anxiety. You can probably diagnose it looking in the waiting right. room. You, it can't get out a piece of paper and a blood test. Right. And and there's and there's there's the option to blame someone for it. It's not right. It's wrong, but it's it's doable. And you right. can't blame someone for getting cancer. I don't know. If you want to say because they a behavior they had, but well, whatever. They but smoked or yeah, whatever. But, that, but but that's the exception. You know, pretty much always. And it's just. It's, it's, it's horrible, but we, 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 we digress. (laughs) Well, we digress a little bit, but it gets back to the question of how do you treat anxiety in pregnancy? Yeah. So if you, the conversation with your OB, with your psychiatrist is about the importance of mental wellness in pregnancy to have good pregnancy health across the board, including all of the obstetric metrics, whether it's nutrition or proper rest or high blood pressure or diabetes. Now you can get gestational diabetes through through no fault of your own, right? right? right. But if you're miserable, if you're super anxious, you're not going to manage that diabetes properly. And if you have high blood sugar during pregnancy, that leads to a host of other pregnancy complications. Yeah, we have people who show up and they have, they call this, you know, the, the white coat hypertension mm-hmm. where they, you know, get hypertension in my office and they don't have it at home. And some of it's related to anxiety, some of it's not, but we definitely have people who have known anxiety and they come and their blood pressure is high in the office. And then it takes time. And, you know, when they're calmer and they're home or not at home, whatever, it's normal. And they're like, should I take a blood pressure medicine? I'm like, no, we need to treat your anxiety. Like you're, you're, you're very anxious and it's actually having a physiologic effect on you, causing your blood pressure to go up is not good. And so I prefer to treat your anxiety to treating your blood pressure because that's going to, number one, work better. Number two, you'll also feel better. And it's, that happens. That happens a lot. And they're like, what? I'm like, yeah, take your Xanax in the morning of your appointment. So that way, when you come in, you're not going to be, you may be anxious, but much less so. And your blood pressure is going to frequently be better. And then I'm not going to send you to the hospital where you have preeclampsia, right? Because you don't, because your blood pressure was normal when you woke up in the morning. It's just 45 minutes later in my office, it's very high. And so there's so much of that that is relevant that people don't even realize it in that sense and how much the mental health affects even their physiology. Well, especially the physiology, because when you're anxious, your stress management system Mm -hmm. is overactivated. Yeah. So you have more cortisol running through, more epinephrine, and that has direct physiologic effects. And just as I said, you can see somebody who's depressed in the waiting room. You can see somebody who's anxious. That's the person who's tense, who can't sit still. There are actual physical components to the emotional state of anxiety. Right. So in in case you thought it wasn't real. Right. And it's all in your head. Yeah. There's that famous joke about the guy who, do you know this one? No. The guy, Sadie and Max who are in their like 80s, mm. go to the neurologist. Sadie's waiting for hours. This, uh, Max comes out and he says, oh, thank God it's a brain tumor. I thought it was all in my head, <laughs> right? <laughs> but um, bum. Yeah. So 
for anybody who doubts that anxiety is real. Right. Look in the waiting room. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Look at what happens with white coat hypertension. Doesn't yeah. white coat hypertension, isn't that a marker for hypertension in general? It's interesting. It's 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 complicated because it seems that people with white coat hypertension have a higher chance of getting hypertension in general, but it's also clearly related to some form of response, you know, like anxiety. Oh, no, type no. Of, I mean, it's it's definitely related to anxiety, right? but long-term, yeah, it's, it's, it's a actually of, a marker yeah. for a hyperreactive right. vascular right, system. Right, exactly. Or, or that long-standing anxiety can actually lead to hypertension. One or the other. I don't One know. One or the other. Well, I don't know. It's, it's a bi-directional relationship. It's, it is. Do, do like you find say. in your own patients that anxiety tends to worsen over the course of pregnancy, get better, depends on the circumstances, obviously. What do you tend to see? It depends. Now, mm -hmm. if you have panic disorder, uh -huh. which is yeah. panic attacks with or without agoraphobia, yeah. agoraphobia being a fear that you'll have a panic attack in right. some place where escape is impossible or help's not available, mm -hmm. and you'll have a heart attack, a stroke, or right. go crazy. If you have panic disorder, it tends to get worse in pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And instead of your panic attacks lasting 30 minutes to an hour, mm -hmm. they can become pan-cycle panic attacks. Mm -hmm. And they, you can have nocturnal panic attacks, right. whereas you might not have had those before. So the panic can start at different times and it can last for hours right. and even days. And then it can tip you into a more severe anxiety right. slash depression right. type of situation. Right. Obsessive compulsive disorder, can also get worse in pregnancy because you have more things to worry about. Right. Right now you're worried about how everything that happens yeah. to you could affect the baby. Depression we know can get worse in pregnancy. Right. And all of them can get worse postpartum. And everything <laughs> can get worse postpartum. And yeah. GAD, generalized anxiety yeah. disorder, can get worse because, I mean, not, not just if you weren't aware of all the things that can go wrong, the fact that you have to see your healthcare provider, yeah. doctor, yeah. <laughs> or whichever obstetrical yeah. provider you're seeing sure. that you have to have regular checkups. That's right. like a little red flag that yeah. they're looking for stuff. We could talk about ultrasounds for a second. <laughs> okay, let's do it. Okay. You're a specialist. You're a maternal fetal medicine specialist. Mm -hmm. You guys are the ultrasound gurus okay. of New York City Thank and you. the surrounding region. We'll take it. Absolutely. All right. True or not, I'll take it. That's fine. It's true. Okay. So I'll never forget going into a mall. Mm -hmm. and seeing a huge banner from a radiology practice that said, meet your baby, come have a 4D ultrasound. Right. And I looked at that and I had a panic attack. Right. Because you're not doing prenatal ultrasound to introduce the patient right. to her baby. Right. You're doing it to look for problems. Right. If there are no problems, it's nice to get a picture of the baby and right. maybe facilitate bonding yeah. during the pregnancy. But you're really doing it to look for problems. So for especially for anxious patients, every time they have a test, right. uh, quote unquote, routine screening in right. pregnancy, they're not stupid. Yeah. They know you're looking for problems. So they right. get anxious in anticipation of the test. Yeah. And one test is good. So then they're worried about the next test. Yeah. And whenever you see people advertising ultrasounds for sort of bonding purposes. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of those. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's it's it could be an issue. The yeah. what's an interesting subset of patients I find is people who don't have, let's say they don't have an anxiety disorder, they don't have anxiety typically, but almost like a PTSD, since they had a bad outcome in the prior pregnancy, when they are pregnant again, they have horrible, horrible anxiety. 
but it's situational, right? It's almost like they're always standing on the street with the bus coming at them. Again, it's 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 normal in a sense because let's say they had a you know they had a stillbirth and a horrible thing last pregnancy, and so they get pregnant and they're a little bit anxious. And then as they get more pregnant and they're approaching the time when then the stillbirth last pregnancy, they're getting horribly anxious, way worse than the person who has an anxiety disorder and is on three medications. But it's also quote unquote normal. Like it's understandable. Like they're it's it's it makes a lot of sense that they have crazy anxiety. And so if someone like that is coming to see you, I mean when they're not pregnant, they're basically fine, let's say, right? They're obviously scarred because of and you know, hurt because of what happened to them a year ago, two years ago, three years ago. But they don't have an anxiety disorder. They don't, they're they're fine leaving the house, they can work, they can do those things. But then they're pregnant and it's debilitating. Do you treat it the same way you would an anxiety disorder, or is it more is it different because if it's very situational for the pregnancy, how do you approach, I assume you see people like that uh, all the time. How yeah. do you approach them compared to someone who has it always, let's say? Well, we, we come back to the original the original principle that mm-hmm. a little anxiety is adaptive and too much right. anxiety interferes with your mm-hmm. ability to live, uh, so to live your life. Right. So, I mean, the therapeutic approach is to acknowledge that there's a real potential threat Mm-hmm. That's more more real to them because right. they've lived through it, right? Than somebody who hasn't had a poor pregnancy outcome right. before. I mean, ranging from miscarriage yeah, to stillbirth yeah. or whatever, or a, a crash delivery that yeah. was painful and sure. life threatening in some way. To then saying, well, how can we mitigate the risk of a poor outcome? I, I it sounds like poor outcome is the wrong word, but yeah. how can, how, what can you do to reduce the risk that things won't go as planned right? or reduce the risk that you might not have a healthy baby? Right. So we, we want to be proactive. Right. It means, you know, going to your OB visits, seeking a specialty cons- consultation right. with the best maternal fetal medicine group <laughs> in the country. <laughs> I tell people, you guys are so good that you saved my patients, twins by gestational carrier. Oh. <laughs> in the Midwest, okay. born in the Midwest. And it's true. It's okay. true. It's, uh, without even seeing them. Right. You actually did. But anyway, get the maternal fetal medicine consults you need. Mm-hmm. And then if the anxiety is keeping you up at night, mm-hmm. or you're not eating properly, you can't sleep, you can't function, mm-hmm. we medicate it. Right. If, if talk yeah. therapy is not adequate. Right. So there's a real threat, but your body is reacting, perhaps not overreacting, but that reaction can take on a life of its own independent of what started it in the first place. So that's how we approach it. Fascinating. Really interesting. And again, anxiety is something that's actually routinely screened for postpartum. It's because again, someone without anxiety can get postpartum anxiety, just like postpartum depression. Again, this is something we've spoken about before, but it's just a reminder that it's not unique to pregnancy. It can be postpartum. It can get worse, but it also, you know, happened for the first time and someone unsuspecting. Shari, thank you so much for coming on, for spending all this time on your birthday with me and with our listeners doing two podcasts back to back, which I really appreciate. It's awesome. It's great to see you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw 
at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only. It does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan.